Uh, my name is Rob Hopkins. Can you hear me at the back? Is that okay? Good. Sorry for this rather strange room. I have to project myself to the back, and hopefully you can all see. So uh, I'm Rob Hopkins from Transition Network, and the idea of this session for the next uh, hour and a half is to bring you up to speed with a project that we've been working on uh, in Transition Network, which is sort of Transition Network's contribution, or part of Transition Network con Network's contribution to the uh, COP21 negotiations that take place in Paris in December. So uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, so in December... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in December uh, in Paris, the world leaders meet for the next round of the COP negotiations, and there's a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes to try and... Uh, produce a result from that, which is what we need in terms of in terms of climate change. So there's uh, big questions around that and whether it will or whether it won't. And we had a conversation within Transition Network about well, what would be the best risk? What would be a transition contribution to that? Because everybody will be, is producing documents saying what you need to do is this, what you need to do is that. And uh, as we saw with COP15, when that didn't happen, it sort of put the climate movement into a sort of doldrums that took about four years to climb back out of when that didn't produce what was uh, needed. So we, uh, so our sense was that what we needed to, to contribute was, uh, was, a, was a celebration, was something which, uh, which documented what transition groups are doing and offered those stories uh, as, a, as a celebration, but in a sense was saying, actually, whatever happens at COP21, here's stories of people all around the world, a movement of people all around the world who are already acting and behaving in a way that's consistent to, the, to, to where we need to get to work. And actually, what, what, what comes out of that? What can we learn from that? So we, um, so we put out a call across the transition movement uh, about six months ago and we invited transition groups and many of you who are in transition groups will have seen the invitation we invited transition groups to send in stories that you would like us to share in Paris in December what stories are you uh, uh, what projects what things are happening in your transition group that you would like to share so we had about 80 different stories uh, that people sent in and uh, many of those stories were, were, were really fantastic. And it was quite a, a job to, to sort of uh, sift them down to 21 that felt like they hung together in a way that, that you could present them as a whole and say, here's something really interesting. So, uh, so, so, and so what I want to do in this session is to tell you those stories, to give you a sense of, of, of what we hope we'll, we'll do with those stories. And I know that there are some people here who are part of those stories, so as I tell those stories and get them horribly wrong, uh, please feel entirely welcome to say it's not like that at all and uh, tell your own story if you would like to do that instead. Uh, and then what, one of the things that really interests me about them is to look at, well, what, what are the threads that are running through these stories? When you put them all together, what do we kind of get a sense of in terms of what is moving uh, and what this is telling? So after I've gone through the stories... I'll invite people to, to get into some groups and, and do some work around that, and, and then we'll have a conversation, and I'll point out some of the ones that I see, and then we'll see where we go from there. Does that sound all right? Good. Thank you. Okay, so anyway, our, our pictures are rather fat for some reason that I don't know, but this is the kind of, this is the cover of the book that we're, that, that we're looking at doing, 
So, uh, so very often when you talk to people who are in government or whatever about community-led projects, the idea that actually real change can come from, from communities, from people such as yourselves, rather than just from governments and big organisations, big businesses, that's seen as a rather silly kind of idea. Of course communities can't do anything really mean, meaningful, it's just bits here and bits there. So we've pulled together these, these 21 stories. And actually when you look at those 21 stories together... We're looking at stories, this is the only page with lots of bullet points on, by the way, the rest is nice pictures. These stories that we're looking at have raised over £13 million in investment in community renewable energy. They've led to 131,000 more miles being cycled uh, than before. They've, they generate 16,000 gigawatts of energy, save 9,000 tonnes of carbon, that's energy equivalent to about 36,000 homes. Uh, they've created 39 new social enterprises. They've put over a million pounds worth of community currencies into circulation. They've led to 74,000 more miles being walked than walked before. They've generated over 15,500 hours of community volunteer input. And that's only out of five or six who actually measured that. How many transition groups here measure the amount of volunteer hours that they generate? Not many. It's fascinating data to kind of pull together. They support 18 farms, harvested over 500 kilos of fruit, save 21 kilos of food from landfill every year, run 13 seed exchanges, raise £5,000 for community enterprises, started building projects with a value of about £5 million, and saved 1,300,000 kilometres of car travel. That's not bad, is it, really? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, that's, and that's just the benefits that you can measure. You know, and as we'll see in the story, there's, there's countless other benefits that are much, much harder to measure in terms of community cohesion and sense of agency and possibility and all those kinds of other things which will come through in the stories. But actually, when we pull these 21 stories together, which are actually 39 different projects in 15 different countries around the world, um, you know, you start to really get a sense that of, 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 of the power of what we're seeing happening in transition. You know, this, you can't kind of dismiss this as some frivolous kind of silly kind of people knitting their own yoghurt kind of uh, <laughs> flaky nonsense. You know, this is, this is really kind of really making things happen. So we have projects, as I say, from 15 countries around the world and they were all sent in to us and we sifted them through. Uh, and so I'm going to share some of those stories with you then. So this, and they aren't that wide as well, just in case you're wondering, they're very short and very wide. They're actually not. Um, so this is, uh, this is in Black Isle, uh, a peninsula in Scotland. And uh, this is a project called, the, called A Million Miles, the Million Miles Project, where Transition Black Isle set out to reduce the amount of car travel uh, on the peninsula by a million miles. A million miles is the equivalent of driving to the moon and back twice. So they did a lot of work promoting cycling. Uh, they brought people together in a whole range of different ways. Uh, um, they had a car club. They did a lot of work about, about car sharing, all that kind of stuff. And as I said, so they, they've engaged 13,000 uh, people. No, it's an island of 13,000 people, sorry. 
and uh, they, they ended up by the end reducing car travel by 1,352,277 miles through a whole range of different uh, techniques uh, and approaches that they used. 74,196 more miles walked than previously before, uh, saving 718 tonnes of carbon. But actually, again, things that come out of that is the connections, the exercise. You know, we often, we, we had a workshop before here talking about the transition story and telling the transition story. I think one of the key ways of telling the transition story is talking about transition as a public health strategy. You know, a lot of what's talked about in the world of public health is about exercise, is about getting people together, getting people outdoors. Transition does that so very beautifully. And this is, a, this is one of those things that, is this, a, is this a low carbon project or is this a public health uh, project? Both, exactly. And much more besides. The second story that we have uh, in here is the rise of community energy. And Howard Johns was here today launching his book about, about community energy. So we looked at uh, 10 different community energy projects. This is Brixton Energy uh, in Brixton uh, doing one of their, their, their community solar schemes. They've done four of them now, uh, installing uh, photovoltaics on roofs of some of the poorest housing there. They found that their first share option where they wanted to raise £70,000 was mostly, the most of the investment came from kind of white, middle-class Brixton, sort of trendy green people, as they put it. What they found by the time that their third share option was that it was much more the people who lived on the estates moving relatively small amounts of money in as investments because they could see the benefits to the wider community. The word, they said the word was out that this was a good thing. And actually now a lot of the investment comes from people who live on the estate. Every time they do an installation, a percentage of the money goes to... Um, goes to energy efficiency measures in the buildings. They train people who live in the building uh, to get involved and to become solar installers as well. But there's all kinds of different projects. There's the Bath and West Community Energy, who've raised millions of pounds uh, for community energy projects there. And when you add up all of it, it's about 13 million pounds of investment that has come into these uh, projects across the country. What we're seeing now, sadly, uh, in the UK is a government that looks... Uh, set to change the legislation that will make this kind of model of communities coming together to do this kind of thing uh, unviable. And I think there's a really strong case for saying that it so spectacularly misses the point. Because actually, if you just look at community energy schemes and you assume that all they generate is energy, you miss the point entirely. Because the that what's generated by these schemes is so much more. They generate confusion, they generate story, they bring people together again, there's public health benefits... There's a whole range of different benefits that emerge from taking this uh, approach. Um, and, uh, yeah, and there's loads of them, and they're all over the place. And, uh, and they become, like, the, like in Fishguard in, in Brogorn, the, the wind turbine there, which actually, once it's paid off in five or six years, becomes a steady stream of money that can be put into low-carbon projects across the town. Uh, if you want to put money into, in, into community development, community renewables means that it's just an ongoing stream that can grow and grow. It makes so much sense. This is uh, in Luxembourg. It's a very beautiful picture. Again, the tree isn't that fat, but there we go. So, uh, so Luxembourg is, is a country, it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's one of the countries with the highest carbon emissions in the world. And actually, transition has sort of been going there for two or three years and has started all kinds of different 
uh, things. There's lots of transition groups happening there. I went there a couple of years ago, and there was a phenomenal level of interest in transition. This is a, a project called Terra. This, if, if you wanted to come and sit at the front, there's some space down here if, you, if you'd like to as well, <laughs> rather than standing the whole time. Um, so, so, so Transition Luxembourg have, st uh, have started, there are three cooperatives that have come through Transition Luxembourg. There's one which is a, an energy company, uh, a, a, a community energy co-op, which has raised 50,000 euros so far in investment from local people. This is, uh, this is called Terra, and this is a, a community-supported agriculture scheme with about 180 members right on the edge of Luxembourg. And they thought, we're never going to find land to do a community-supported agriculture scheme on the, edge of, uh, on the edge of Luxembourg. But literally, on this site, you can look out and you can see the city. They put it out there. Somebody rang them up and said, I've got a piece of land perfect for you. And then there they are running that. Um, so for me, this is a really nice story, which is about, um, about those things having a context. You could have just had... Uh, this is a community-supported agriculture scheme, but it feels part of something bigger. There's a bigger story going on, which is about how all those things hang together. This is in Greaton in South Africa. And Greaton is a town which has many of the, the, many of the legacies of apartheid. It was a place where, uh, where lots of people were moved and resettled out to Greaton. And it has many of those issues that are the legacy of uh, of apartheid um, and this is a project that Transition Grayton started called the Eco Crew and Eco Crew works with young people and works with young people in local schools and it's about um, they have a whole range of different things that they offer for young people one of the things they do is, they, is they're uh, giving the town dump a makeover there was a young lad who, who visited us in Totnes from America who went there and uh, was, was doing some work with the group there. And he said, I realised when I was there, going out to this dump, which is the most beautiful place, beautiful views of the mountains, and there's the town's dump all covered in rubbish. He said, I realised when I was there that I had spent all my teenage years going to festivals where we, we would turn up at a beautiful, pristine, greenfield site, and we would spend the next four days covering it in rubbish. And I thought, what would it look like if you had a festival that turned up at a site covered in rubbish and spent the next four days tidying it up? <laughs> so they had this idea, they called it the Trash to Treasure Carnival Festival. And the idea of the Trash to Treasure Festival was that they would turn this site, this rubbish dump, into a kind of green classroom. One of the things they use is something called Eco Bricks, which is this thing where you get plastic drinks bottles, kind of litre bottles, and a stick and you pack them full of any plastic crisp packets, whatever plastic bag you can find, until they're completely full, and you put the lid back on, that's your brick. In Guatemala, they've built thousands of homes and, and schools and, and health centres using these things. Uh, kids, have to, uh, kids have to bring their homework in, written on the side of an eco-brick. So they have to go home and make the eco-brick, do their homework on it, the homework gets marked, and then it goes into building a new classroom. And so that's one of the things that, that they're doing here as well. And they, take, they do work as well uh, with, in, in the schools with, with, with very poor families there, where you bring eco-bricks in, and then you can swap them. They have a swap club. You get vouchers that you can then use for clothes and for food. Uh, they take kids off uh, doing big, big tree plantings, they teach permaculture uh, in the school. They've made a new food garden in the school. So they're, they're coming at doing transition with the young people, working with the young people, and finding that as the way uh, to bring families in and get them involved. 
The next story is the rise of local currencies. And actually, when we added up all of the different local currencies that we could find that had figures for it, we were looking at about a million pounds of local currency uh, in circulation at the moment. This is uh, Brixton Pound's fifth birthday special five-pound note that was designed by uh, a Turner Prize-winning artist. And uh, I just love the idea of thinking about uh, what, would it, what would it look like if more of our money was like this? And they describe it as a, as, as they describe local currencies as a, as a wonderful invitation to step into a different future. And, and on the Bristol pounds, uh, they have written in very small letters, keeping money out of the Cayman Islands since 2012. <laughs> uh, so the exact figure is £1,025,379 worth of, uh, of, of local currencies in circulation. And... Uh, you, yeah. Is that just in the transition movement or all local Yeah, well, these, these are the ones that sort of sometimes get clumped together as transition currencies that transition groups have started that are, are that model where it's a, a printed note which has a value to the, to the national currency. Um, and one of my favourite ones that we found out, this one's from Mexico, this is a currency called the Cuny where they're all round. Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? Round money. I don't know how it would work in the tills in the shops. To fold it in half, unless you had a particular kind of till. But this sort of creativity that, that, that is coming through with local currencies and what's happening in Bristol now where, 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 where the local currency is being used as a way of the city council starting to really rethink how it does its tendering, how it spends its money. The mayor of Bristol takes his full salary in Bristol pounds. You can now use Bristol pounds to buy train tickets, pay your energy bills, go on the buses, pay your council tax, pay your business rates. You know, this is something that is starting to be seen as a real driver of, of a different way of looking at the, the economy. Bristol City Council are starting now to look at whether they could add the Bristol Pound into their tendering process. So if you are a business that accepts Bristol Pounds, it adds more weight to your, um, to your transactions, to, to your tender. Rather. Yeah. This is in Pasadena uh, in the States. This is the Repair Café. Transition Pasadena's Repair Cafe. How many people are in transition groups who run repair cafes? Yeah, it's, one, it's, one, it's one of those things that, that, that lots of transition groups pick up and run with, and they work really fantastically. Do you find? They, yeah. yeah, and uh, what they found in Pasadena, because in Pasadena they're very close to um, Caltech, and uh, which I can't remember, there's, there's something or other. Anyway, it's, it's like where NASA do stuff. And there was a lovely quote where somebody came away saying, I can't believe that the guy who built the Mars rover just fixed my shaver. <laughs> <laughs> and the way they do it, the, the, the guy who I spoke to there, a guy called Greg, he said, the way we do it is, if you bring something in and you want to get it fixed, it's free to do it. And we have some of the best people, you know, this idea that you won't find anybody who'll give up their time to come along and fix stuff, he said, they all come. And uh, there's a whole community of people out there who just love fixing stuff, and they'll come. Because what we say to people is, you're welcome to come, we'll fix it for free. All we ask is, while I'm fixing it, you tell me a story. Tell me a story about your life. Tell me something that's current for you, that's live for you at the moment, while I fix your thing. And uh, fantastic. And again, it's one of those things where you can't really measure. It's kind of hard to measure the benefits, the impacts that come from something like that. 
This is in, uh, in Brogorn, in Fishguard. You might want to tell us more about this. This is, let's see, if I get it wrong, you can. So uh, they, uh, they started out uh, with a group of people who, who went around looking to find food for, to feed pigs. And uh, they found there was so much food that the food businesses uh, in the town were, were throwing away that they didn't really, you know, they thought we, we could do something a bit better with this, really. So they started this idea of a, of, of a surplus food cafe. And uh, they were offered some space. There was a building that, that became available that was pointed out to them by the manageress of the co-op over the road. And they, uh, first of all, to find out whether there was a demand for it in a local hotel, they ran an evening where they cooked a meal for people using food that was all kind of uh, surplus food. And, and said, well, what kind of thing? Could, could we do something with this? Would you be up for this? And people said, yeah, that's great. We'd like a cafe. We'd like it to be low cost. We'd like it to be a place where we can come together, where we can meet, where we can connect. So this is the cafe as, as it runs now. Um, they, um, they, every year they keep 600 kilos of food that would otherwise go to landfill, <coughs> out of landfill. And uh, it's going up. And it's going up. Tesco's. <laughs> the big supermarkets wouldn't give to us when we started. It's only over the last year that they got less risk averse. Rap have been doing a lot of work on that. And um, we're now getting more food from, from the bigger stores. And we need to disappear. Because one of the things when I, when I spoke to them was, was, was they said, actually, we're one of very, very few business models that would come through transitional, through the economy, where we would actually regard our own demise as a success. If we get to the stage where there's not enough food for us to run our cafe, that's the result. That's kind of where we want to get to. I wish. <laughs> so, and, uh, and also, one of the interesting things I found was, was, was the idea that you, um, uh, you know, that, that you could hire the most amazing chefs, but, they would, but there's a different kind of set of skills here, because you don't know until the morning what you're going to be cooking with. The stuff comes in, you have to be flexible, you have to adapt. So the day I ran... Someone had just bought in 30 kilos of bananas or something. You know, what, a massive amount of bananas. What do you do with all of that stuff? So, a banoffee pie. A massive banoffee pie. So actually, one of the things is having a chef who's able to be flexible and kind of think on his feet. And there's some more kind of apprenticeships created, people who've come through here as volunteers and then gone on to, to develop uh, work in, in, in catering. Yeah, that's through Jobs Growth Wales. Yeah. Any last things you'd like to say about this? What would you say with the other kind of... What would you say this project has produced apart from uh, food on plates? Um, and, and I would hope and a growing awareness in the community um, that waste food is... You can use it, it's fine, although we're still fighting against people who throw everything away beyond its best before date. So there's that educative side. But as well, I think we're beginning to see a growth of that sharing, gifting community. The cost of renovating the building was about 20 grand and half of that, over half of that, was just given to us by the local community, the local businesses, um, local people coming in and doing work for us. Um, and still, of course now, people gift their fruit and veg this time of year particularly. Um, so I, I think that gifting, sharing community idea is, 
beginning to take root. Um, so. Wonderful. Thank you. Chris, by the way. This is, uh, this is a project in, in, in France called uh, the Casal Community Garden in a place called Salis. Salis? Salis. 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 Yeah. And uh, uh, anyone here from Salis? No. So, Close. Close, okay. So what's really fascinating about this project is this is uh, uh, what I didn't really realise was up until the French Revolution, all across France there were many, many different languages, regional languages, local languages. And actually at the beginning of the French Revolution... Uh, it was said, we celebrate the diversity of languages, we love all your languages as part of the revolution. And shortly after that, they said, actually, no, you all need to speak Parisian French. <laughs> because actually, then we can be a real people's republic. You should forget all your languages. So lots of these different languages, these regional local languages, were lost. And what they're doing... Uh, so, ev so the world at the moment loses uh, a language every 14 days. And it's estimated that by 2100, about half of the 7,000 languages in the world will have disappeared. What they're doing here is linking the loss of seed diversity with the loss of language diversity. So they run uh, regular seed exchanges with about 80 different varieties of local heritage heirloom seeds to that part of the world. But they run their events in French, in, uh, uh, in English. Why would they do them in English? They do them in three languages anyway. And one of them is the local language. So they, sit, so they make that connection between keeping the language alive together with doing that. And this is, this is a, like a, a garden that they have, which has many other benefits to all sorts of people. We tried very hard not to have a... When we were scoring the, uh, the stories we were going to put in, any story from Totnes, we gave a minus two mark. <laughs> because we wanted to, to not have any in, particularly. But actually, the Caring Town story is something that, that was so, uh, so sort of stood out from a lot of the other ones that we felt it really should go in there. So Caringtown uh, is a project which, which shows, uh, for me, one of the next steps of, of doing transition, in that it's not about Transition Town Totnes saying, this is a transition project, but it's about transition, the transition group taking a step back and just taking a facilitator role. So this isn't, doesn't have Transition Town Totnes all over it. The idea of this project is that it's about um, uh, looking at care in a different way. So here in this country, we have a massive sort of uh, austerity agenda being rolled out by the government who are cutting funding to care services uh, across the country, which has the worst impacts on the people who are most vulnerable. Uh, and Totnes is no exception. And so the Caring Town brought together the 60 different organisations in the town who provide care or have some kind of relationship to the provision of care in the town. Brought them together and said, maybe we can look at this in a different way started out that they had a, a, a day where they brought them all together around the idea of just a question, how can we do care better in this town? Uh, and all of the people, all the organisations who came wanted to come back and do more. They had a fair where, all, where they all had stalls. And actually where this is moving towards now is to bringing them together to look at doing what they do much more effectively, having a kind of... Uh, um, like a, a, a drop-in place where you can come and all those services are there so you can get signposted to the services that you need and people can work together much more effectively uh, but all within the context of the wider work of transition in terms of economic blueprint and uh, economic localisation 
It also involves bringing assets into community ownership. So there's a building, the Mansion House in town, which has been brought into community ownership to provide a space where, uh, where this could all be based. So again, it's something where... And it's also that, that idea that uh, who are the vulnerable people? And often there's the idea that the vulnerable people are the people who the services are for, and the people who are providing the services are actually doing fine. But actually it's quite often the other way around, or at least both of them. You know, so, so, so it's starting to look at care in a very, very different way. Uh, this is in Spain, in a place called Zarzalejo. Anyone here from Zarzalejo? Even though I've said it completely wrong. You're not from Zarzalejo, I know you're not. You're nodding. <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, one of the really interesting... Did you go here on your, on your tour? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we went for the first uh, conference, but we did it there. Okay. So again, you'll probably know more about this story than me. So this is, this is uh, a really interesting uh, story in terms of the, the, the political changes happening in Spain, where in Barcelona and in Madrid, uh, in the recent elections, there was a very, very progressive... Uh, organizations kind of took hold and in many areas the local councils the local government has been sort of taken back by local people and this is uh, in Zazalejo the, the transition group uh, are you doing a whole kind of vision process about what could the future of this place be what would it look like if we did all of this in a different way so within that new political context the transition group are running this kind of process about how might we do... But they haven't actually done it yet. So this is a story that will be filled in, in, a, in a, shortly. But was there anything that particularly struck you from being there that was worth sharing? Not really. I mean, it's a kind of a... Probably a good example of what is happening all around Spain. So there are a lot of small communities and they are having a massive shift. And, you know, the houses are being uh, taken by, by actually activists and people that they were... Some of them, in this case, for example, went to the transition initiative that they probably the oldest in mm. the area of Madrid. They've been running that initiative for three, four years. So, and I think that that will make a massive change in, in politics. Yeah. Because it's like a new way of doing things from the inside. So you start to get a sense of how it starts to move at that kind of scale as well. Yeah, thank you. This is uh, the Local Entrepreneur Forum in Brixton. One of the, it's, uh, something that was started in Totnes was this idea of a, of a local entrepreneur forum. The idea of that is, how do, we, uh, how do we incubate and start new businesses happening in this place? You know, we need new enterprises doing a whole range of different things. But what does it look like if the community really comes together to support that and to enable that to happen? So the first Local Entrepreneur Forum in Totnes was four years ago. And the idea was, well, let's bring together people who have ideas for new enterprises, together with people who want to invest in those enterprises, together with people who have skills and expertise they would like to share, to kind of offer a mentoring to those people. So at the beginning of the day, you just sort of get them all together and hear each other other's ideas. And in the afternoon, we do a thing called the Community of Dragons. And the Community of Dragons is the kind of absolute opposite of the Dragon's Den on the television where millionaires sit and humiliate people who come through the door and occasionally throw money at them. The idea of the community of dragons is everybody in this community is potentially an investor in the new economy of this place. Whether you can lend someone a pen, £100,000, let them use a field, design a website for them, do their accounts for them, look after their kids while they go to see the bank manager, all of that is investing in, in the economy of this place. 
So we've done four of them now on top of this. In total, they've raised about £70,000 worth of investment for the businesses that have come through. But actually, what, what's more important than that is the sort of community that's built around those businesses, the people that support them, the people that care for them, and the connections between them, because they feel part of the family. The ones who went through the first couple of years come back every year. I was part of a social enterprise. I am part of a social enterprise craft brewery called the New Lion Brewery. Our beer is on sale in the bar tonight. Panda IPA, very, very nice. <laughs> we came through the first year, thank you. We came through the first year of that, and actually now we come back every year. We offer each one business that comes through, and we'll work with them during that year and brew a beer with them, uh, made with some of their ingredients. So we did a beer called uh, uh, Black Oat IPA, working with Grown in Totnes, that was a business that wanted to process oats locally in Totnes and needed to put the infrastructure in place. So we made a, a mild using their oats as part of their fundraiser. So you start to see how the different things hang together. This was in Lambeth. This was the first one of those to happen outside of Totnes, and it was a real test. Does this work? And actually, it worked beautifully. There were five different businesses who pitched, their, uh, who pitched what they wanted to do. Uh, there were about 150 people came. They raised about £1,500 worth of pledges of people offering financial support, another four and a half, five thousand pounds worth of kind of in-kind pledges. One of the businesses kicked off their kicked their funding, crowdfunding thing, uh, and raised five thousand pounds to do that fundraising thing. So it's what it looks like when a community comes together and gets behind its social entrepreneurs. And again, although there are things in there that you can measure in terms of output, there are lots of things that you just can't in terms of connections uh, and relationships. This is in media in Pennsylvania. Uh, this is their free store. And again, there's lots of places that are doing free store. I went to one in, in Berlin a little while ago. Uh, but this is, this is their free store. And uh, they have 85 volunteers, and they're open for 30 hours a week. And uh, they, they refer to this as a compassion-building exercise. Imagine if more shops were designed to be a compassion-building exercise. I want, there were some really great stories they told about just that, that thing of a shop where everything is free. And uh, a story about a woman who came in and said, um, I've lost my hairdryer. The old me would have gone out and bought two new ones. The new me is in here asking if you've got a hairdryer. Uh, and... Uh, there was one of the things that we did, which, is in, which will be in the booklet, is we asked each of these stories to give us a message that they would like us to give to the people in Cochrane. Co we said, if those delegates, if those world leaders came and visited your project, what would you tell them? What would the message you would want to tell them? So the people in the free store said, come and volunteer at the free store. <laughs> Dust some shelves. Flatten some cardboard. <laughs> Another world is possible. It just takes some imagination. <laughs> so, and, and, and the interesting, the talking about how it challenges people. Is it free, really? Yes, it's free. And so what they say, that their only rule is, uh, bring or take as much as you can carry and no more. This is in the Netherlands, uh, uh, a project called, uh, my, I'm not even going to pronounce it, maybe I need it wrong, Ardenhuis, Ardenhuis means earth house, anyway. 
<laughs> this, is, this is a development of 23 houses uh, which were originally designed to be earth ships built using car tyres and then they, got, they built 13 of them and they got so fed up <laughs> with packing earth on their tyres they were exhausted after 13 houses so the rest of them are built with straw bales. Uh, um, but this is a really interesting thing about partnership because one of the things that, that is really important in terms of transition being able to really scale up its impact is about when it's right to work in partnership and how you do that. So actually this project was running before transition started. Some of the people were involved in both. So the, the two things worked together in a really beautiful way. So the transition group uh, um, ran events. So the sustainable housing group of the, of, of the transition group was this project. It's generated uh, 1,500 people have volunteered on this project. So it's, it's a beautiful kind of partnership between the transition group and the, and the Eco Village project. The, uh, the, uh, the scheme has generated a solar project. So they did, they did a bulk solar buying scheme. So 80 local families now have solar through this scheme and through these two things really working together. And they're beautiful houses as well. This is a story which I told in a workshop before, so if you were here, I apologise for repeating it. This is in Brussels, uh, in an area of Brussels called 1000 Brussels, right in the middle of Brussels, uh, and it's an area which is a red light district. And uh, there's lots of families who live in these apartments here, and they told me stories about you know, taking the children out to school in the morning, and there being condoms in your doorway, and all of the sort of social problems that sort of go along with that. The children could never go out and play in the street. Uh, uh, very difficult. And so the council, when they had this idea, they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to block the streets off across the middle so people can't drive through, so you, people can't curb crawl through those streets. So the people said, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. But actually, we don't just want a concrete block dropped in the middle of the street. We could do a bit better than that. So the people came together and went to the council and said, we'd like to make a garden. So they built a garden. Uh, and the, 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 they provided the materials, the council provided the compost. People came together over two weekends and built these beds. And there are 13 rectangular beds. And each person, uh, there's 13 families who live on the street, and they each have, have a plot each. They said it's really interesting how different how differently each family gardens. Some are really tidy, some are immaculate, some are a real mess. But actually, what happens is people now come out into the streets. He said, every time I go out and start working on the street, within a few minutes of me starting to work, there's four or five children around me who never played in the street before. Um, when uh, he said to me... Uh, I asked him whether... Well, how did transition help you to do this? What was the difference? He said... Could we have done this project before transition came into our lives? I don't think we would. It's a year and a half. We've all been talking about transition almost every week. And it's very quickly changed a lot of things in our lives. For me, I stopped working full week and now work three and a half days a week. I never would have done that if I wasn't thinking about transition and about the future. So again, you know, the impacts of these things go much beyond a few tomatoes and some salad. You know, they start to change the space and what people feel is possible. And sometimes small projects like this, people feel like in, in the context of COP21 and in the context of the big challenges we have, something like this is just too small to matter. 
But actually, for many, many people, this is their first way in. Yeah? The idea of, oh, so we, we've got to tackle climate change. What, me? You're joking. But actually, a project like this starts to give people confidence that you can do stuff and the world around you will start to change. What it looks like will start to change. People say, well, I never had anything to talk about with my neighbours before. Now they can talk about what's growing, what's the salad, what's that, this and that, that kind of thing. So it's beautiful. I love it. And also, it's something that you think, actually, this, this could do, you could just do this all over the place. So they're now working with neighbouring streets, and they're saying, if you can get 13 people together on your street, we'll come and do one of these with you. So they know they've got a kind of a base of people, and somebody in the workshop now just said, 13, that's a good number, that's kind of manageable. It's kind of ambitious, but it's kind of manageable. It's just about mm -hmm. the right kind of, I could do that, just about. This is in Liège in Belgium. Uh, this is a project called Centure d'Alimentaire, which means the food belt. So it's about starting to reconnect the city with the land around it. Because uh, Liège was a big industrial, a big steel manufacturing town, so much of the land within the city is too contaminated to really grow urban agriculture on any kind of scale. This is a project which is about reconnecting them, have a very big vision about how they'll reconnect the city with the land around it and the amount of work that that could create. This is the first farm that they've, that, that, that they've created. Um, it's a 10-acre farm, and they're growing enough veg for about 40 families at the moment. Um, and they're starting another two. They've got a 74-acre site to be added to that. But it's about context, and it's about story, which is a lot of what transition is about. It's not just a farm. It's a farm that sits in the context of rethinking and reimagining and redreaming how the city might feed itself. And they've done an amazing job of connecting it up with all kinds of other organisations. Uh, their plan is to create 20 jobs in five years. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is another, an, a, another one like that. This is in Brazil, uh, at the city of Sao Paulo. Anyone here from Sao Paulo? Like I said, well, there are some. So the woman, uh, Issa, is here if you want to talk to her more about this uh, outside of this session. Uh, Sao Paulo is experiencing uh, a historic drought, and the city is facing what they call, what some people call a hydric collapse. The reservoirs currently contain only 16% of the water that the city needs. And so people who are here from Sao Paulo say when it drops below that level, you can tell because the taste of the water starts to change. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a city that is really facing major, major problems in terms of water. And here are two transition groups. Transition Brasilândia. Brasilândia is a, is a favela in Sao Paulo, one of the poorest... Uh, parts of the city where there's been very active transition happening there now for five or six years. And then Gran Giuliana, which is more of a middle-class kind of suburb of the city. And uh, what's, what a lot of people are starting to do now is put in rainwater harvesting systems. And so many of the houses in the, in, in the middle-class areas are starting to install uh, rainwater harvesting. But in the, in the favela, people don't have access or don't really know how to do it properly. And so there's lots of outbreaks now of dengue fever uh, in the favelas where people are installing um, rainwater harvesting but aren't doing it properly so the mosquitoes get in and lay their eggs and so on. So this is a really interesting kind of skill share activity where, where, where people who know how to do this really well are, are, are running workshops in both communities and are building a sort of a sense of cooperative uh, skill sharing and uh, expertise around this between those two communities. Um, yeah. 
just a couple more, and then I shall get you have a reflect on these. This is Crystal Palace Food Market, and Joe is here from, from Crystal Palace. Um, and uh, this is a really beautiful example of, of transition in action uh, in the middle of the city in London. And uh, it was recently, it was a runner-up in the BBC Good Food Awards, and it won some other award as well that I can't remember what it was, the Love Food Award. Uh, and uh, when Karen, who was one of the people who started it, was thinking about doing it, she went to visit another market in London, and the woman said, uh, you do realise you have to be mad to start something like this? And then she looked her in the eyes and said, yes, you are mad enough to start this. <laughs> So uh, they, one of the key things about the Crystal Palace market is its principles. It's not just a market. From, for, for, a, for a while they spent some time just really identifying what were the principles that underpin the market. So their principles are that they're about supporting small, sustainable farmers, supporting local food production, promoting local growing, promoting community, and creating local employment. Everybody who has a stall there they pay 10% of their takings of that day on a trust basis. And so if they, don't, if, they, if they don't sell anything, they don't pay anything. One of the things that they have uh, happening there, which is really lovely, is the patchwork farm. Because Transition Crystal Palace have started so many uh, food growing projects across Crystal Palace in parks and gardens and so on and so on, that the patchwork farm... Uh, every Saturday they, they harvest produce, salads and other produce from across the different gardens in the patchwork farm and they have a patchwork farm stall at the market where those things are for sale. Uh, they also have a thing called Handmade Palace where local craftspeople can put their, uh, their stuff in to be sold. Um, they, uh, they weekly, each, I the, the total sales at the market are about £10,000 a year. So that's £510,000 a year's worth of trade supporting local businesses and local farms. There are 23 stalls now and 13 new businesses have started in order to fill gaps in the market. So it's something which isn't just creating a market, it's about creating a whole sort of <coughs> environment in which great things can happen. Joe, did you want to add anything else about it? Uh, no, everything you said is correct, and the fact that it's still thriving and still buzzing is exciting. You know, it's not all price, it's always like, you know, it feels like it's still growing, it's still got lots more potential. I feel like it's a thing that other, because it's got lots of kind of interfaces and connections, like got free community stalls and stuff, there's lots of ways that people can plug in other projects into it. So someone approaches us now, like, talking about cycling, or trying to, you know, you can say, well, what do you want to stall at the market? You know, so there's, there's all that potential to pick things in. And also the fact that it's, it's a buzzy hub, you know, it's become a, a centre of the community as well, which is very exciting. And the, and the fact that the transition theme is in there and the principles are in there every week, I see, is, is very exciting as well. Thank you. One of the things that I loved, and which I see again as one of the threads for me that runs through these stories, was, was talking about size. So the temptation is when you run a market that's successful with 23 stalls that you think, let's do one with 50, let's do one with 100, let's franchise this model out across, let's go, let's go international, whatever. You know. and, and, and talking to, to, to Karen and Laura, they were saying, this is big enough, this is fine. We've got, this is a size that works, we're happy with this as it is, and we'll sort of develop it and explore it but within, that, within that context. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Uh, this is Transition Streets. So Transition Streets is something that, that started 
uh, in Totnes as an idea that said, how do you support people to reduce their energy use, their water use, to save money, to save carbon? What's the best way to do that? And actually, the, the, the experiment was, what would it look like if you do that on a street-by-street -street level? You get people together on their streets, they meet in each other's houses, certain times, they have a workbook. You create a kind of community on that street of people who every week are exploring those issues. And it works better because everybody has the same kind of house. Everyone has roughly the same size garden. Everyone's kind of the same distance from town in terms of travel issues. Whereas if you pick people from across the town, that becomes more complicated. So transition in Totnes, we did 550 households have done it. On average, they've saved 1.3 tonnes of carbon. Uh, but the beauty of something like transition is that when one place comes up with a good idea, it can spread, it can be replicated. And transition streets are spread to lots of different places in this country. Uh, transition Belgium, Hub have created a French language version of it, developed for Belgium. There's uh, transition streets happening in all kinds of different places. And this is in Australia, in uh, Newcastle in Australia. And uh, what happened there was that the transition Newcastle started... Uh, to, 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 to turn the topless version into a generic Australian version. And then they found that actually people in, in Melbourne and the suburbs of Melbourne were doing it as well. So you've got, and another place called Kingston. So there were three groups that actually started creating an Australian version at the same time. They thought, well, this is ridiculous. Let's work together and share that. So they've created a, a Creative Commons uh, open source version of Transition Streets. It's running in, in all these different places. It's won awards there. One of my favourite stories was in Newcastle on a street in a very inner city part of, uh, of Newcastle that had lots of street crime and people felt very unsafe walking home was they did transition streets on a street where at the end there was the student house and the students kind of kept different hours to everybody else <laughs> and maybe had slightly different kind of expectations in terms of the, the degree to which they turned the bass up uh, on the music to everybody else. And then it was a, there was a little bit of tension, one might say, between the students and the people. But they all did transition streets together. It brought them all together. And what they realised was that at that time, when people were walking home, feeling really vulnerable, the students were all still up in the house and doing things. So the students took much more of a role. Their house was kind of raised up with a veranda around it. So the students took much more of a role of keeping an eye out on the streets. And several times actually came out and diffused situations in the street. You know, again, it's one of those things that you can't really measure, but it's the unexpected kind of spin-offs, the benefits of when you get people together like this. I've only got two more to go, and then we can do some. It's very warm in here, and you've all been very, very patient sitting through, uh, sitting through my stories. Yes? Um, to, uh, concerning transition streets, we in Germany also established transition streets and in Bielefeld, and um, there were some Turkish people coming who were interested in, in, in that, and um, said, so we make a Turkish version of that. It just happened, and so it spreads in the world. I think it's, Fantastic. it's beautiful. Fantastic. And actually now Transition US uh, are, are spreading, have uh, created a US version, and they've got a crowdfunder thing going on. With If you, if you go on to YouTube and you put in Transition Streets US, you'll find one of the funkiest little one-minute videos about transition I've ever seen. It's really beautifully done. And so do, do support their development of a version for the US as well. This is uh, from a place which, again, I'm going to pronounce wrong, uh, in Portugal, uh, which I've... Oh, wait, I can't remember what it's called, because I haven't written it down here. Anyway, this is a place in Portugal 
And uh, they, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a story that, for me, it has a really important role in this mix of stories. They call it thriving through neighbouring. They've developed this new verb they call neighbouring. So they were a transition group who started, who were very active. They took over a community centre that the local council wanted to close down. The council said, you take it, you run it, run it yourselves. We don't want to do it. So they took on this community centre. They run all kinds of workshops from there. They're in the suburbs of, of Lisbon. They're a place where they're kind of a dormitory town. People live there, they drive to work in Lisbon, then they come back again. So this, this place opened as a, with a community cafe, with bike repair, space for classes, space for all kinds of things to go on. But then what happened was that the, that the transition group all fell out with each other. It's not something I'm sure has ever happened in any of your transition groups. <laughs> the, group, the group has had a big bust up, sod you off, and they all just went off on their own things and, uh, and decided, well, we'll see what happens. You know. So the group kind of fell, to, f fell apart due to conflict. But actually, um, a whole load of them just felt that that was a real shame. And that actually they needed to sort that out. So Sophie Banks, who some of you will know, who developed the Inner Transition training, uh, went there and ran a training with them about, about group work, about good process, about resolving conflict, about good communication. And then based on what they learned with that, they then started to kind of piece it back together again. They said, we needed to learn to fall in love with each other again. We needed to reignite our passion about transition. And they're a beautiful case study of actually, if a transition group falls to bits, that's not necessarily the end of the story. They go, then they can come back together again. But it's the value of good process and good skills. So they now are, they're now back up running uh, different projects again because they kind of pieced it together again intentionally because it was too important to let it go. Rob, do you know what the sign says? Can translate for us? Can I translate? No, I can't talk. Can anybody else translate? I can. Uh, the top is saying it's like a little sticker for you to remember things, like a note. Yeah. Uh, abraços is hugs, and some gratuitous is they are, they are free. Oh, our hugs are free. Yeah. Mm. There we go, very nice. <laughs> I don't know any transition groups that do charge for hugs, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's some, something. This is a, a green slate farm in Billingen Oral. Is anyone here from there? No. So this is transition Billingen Oral. This is up near Wigan. So there was a transition Wigan, and then transition Wigan sort of got a bit stuck. But one of the one of the offshoots was was Billingen Oral. And Mandy, who I spoke to there, talked about she grew up. Uh, she grew up there, and uh, she said over the time I was there, when I was a child, there were four bakers, five butchers. Uh, that kind of high street now we've got one co-op and one butcher and she said you know people have just more and more turned away from each other and actually what we felt we needed was a, was, was a way of bringing them back together again so the transition group did a whole load of different things that many of your groups would have done and then the council uh, I don't, there was a farm that the council owned and the transition group felt they needed a focus they needed a place where they could, where they could do this and this comes back again to that idea of Communities owning assets is a really important uh, evolution in this process. For me, it's one of the next kind of steps up in terms of doing transition, is that as communities we own land, we own buildings, whatever, we own businesses. And, um, and so this, uh, this so Green Slate Farm, they took on this farm and uh, they cleared it with pigs, and they, and they, but they see it as being a, a care farm. 
again, picking up on the, all the cuts to care in this country, they now run it as a care farm, uh, offering services for a whole range of different people. They have a market garden, they do all kinds of different things. Uh, and it's about bringing that asset that in, into community ownership. They're now building a straw bale building, which will host a community kitchen, a bakery, a shop. Uh, but I think Mandy is here, or someone is here from there. And this is the last one. Thank you. Very patiently sat through 21 stories. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Peterborough in Canada. And Transition Peterborough, this is a kind of scaling up story. So they're a transition group who are very actively looking at how do we scale this stuff up. They've started a whole range of things. They have a local currency called the Kawatha Loon. And, uh, uh, they are, and they run Skillshare stuff, lots of big stuff around Skillshare. They did a report called a 25% local food shift where they measured, as other transition groups have done, what would be the local benefits to the economy of making that shift and arguing that actually transition is a form of economic development. It's not just some mad idea. This is something that creates jobs, more, more economic activity locally. Um, so one of the things that they're looking at with the local council is that the local council would take on the currency and back it with its assets rather than the small amount of assets that they have as a transition group. 60 whatever million dollars that the council have. Uh, they said that actually, for them, the way they talk about transition, they said we don't need the catastrophe to sell what we're doing. That actually what they're doing they feel is sufficiently remarkable and positive that they don't really need to do that. And they do a lot of stuff around reskilling as well. So these are my 21 stories.